you don't really question the system. You just go with what is there and never ask why at 99.7% I am not able to get into a program I want. You just say maybe I am not good enough and so I should watch 100 and then I will have And then you, you settle for what you get. And when you come from a, a docile middle class family, you neither question family, neither question system, neither question the state. This is 1987, 40 years after so-called political freedom. We still hadn't got a social economic freedom. 80 kilometers from the city so a young Indian woman who shouldn't even have got pregnant at 14, can't even call her woman a child, gets pregnant and delivers her own baby uh, in the middle of the night. And by delivering the placenta, she soils the only sari, washes the sari in the middle of the night, puts it on the hut for it to dry, and is waiting for the sun to come out to wear it back. So that hit me so hard, I felt like giving up. I think the whole concept of the capacity building commission came from the Prime Minister's vision, vision of how to build a new India and very genuinely believe that this country needs every Indian to participate. Hey listeners, welcome back. This is Inspire Someone today. This is also the second year anniversary of Inspire Someone Today. August is when we launched Inspire Someone Today 2020. Celebrating this second year anniversary, we are running four back-to-back episodes. And this is also the Independence Week. Uh, we are celebrating India's 75th Independence Day called as Amrut Mahotsav. And I couldn't have asked for a better person, better inspirer than Dr. Balu. While this podcast is about creating ripples of inspiration, here is a man who has created fonts of it. His life has been that of a penance with a single most mission of building a resurgent India. It's my absolute pleasure and joy to welcome Dr. Balu on Inspire Someone today. Balu sir, thank you for joining us. Thank you and pleasure to be on this podcast. And I would want to start off with then 99.6% wasn't good enough for you. And how did this shape your life journey? You know, uh, when you're 17 and uh, you, you come from a typical Indian middle class family from a city like Bangalore, like I did, possibly the only aspirations that your family knows and shapes you with the generation I belong to was get into medicine or get into engineering and uh, go abroad. So that was thought when my, my siblings were already abroad and that was the usual career path for most of us. And that's how we were all trained to think. Uh, those are the typical middle class aspirations. And I was no different. Uh, I wanted to get into IITs and possibly IITs didn't want me to get into them. So I didn't qualify. And uh, uh, those days, uh, NITs, as they're called, you were know, called engineering college, the RECs, and computer science had just made an entry. Infosys, I don't think, was yet established. Computers were just coming into India. We just heard what a computer looks like. So I was really fascinated. And uh, applied to NIT Suracal, REC Suracal as well. Then one and eight listed as one. But they just started the program and there only one genuine merit seat. Very disappointed. You know, that's the age when uh, you don't really question the system. You just go with what is there. And you never ask why at 99. Person, I'm not able to get into a program I want. You just say maybe I'm not good enough, and so I should have got 100, and then I would have got it. And then you, you settle for what you get. And when you come from a, a docile middle class family, you neither question family, neither question systems, neither question the state. So it just went along with the flow. And for me, at uh, that, that point of time, it was you take what you get. So I just then came back and took whatever college I was offered. That was EMS Engineering College in Bangalore, and I just joined. And uh, you go by your siblings' advice. My brother was already in regional here of Calgary from the Regional Engineering College preaching, and he said, "You know, if you take mechanical engineering, it's sort of the foundation of engineering sciences. You can then go to any branch you want. So why don't you take mechanics? That's like flying it." Uh, and that that's all it meant at that point of time. It really, I never really processed this. Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? We just took what it was, and it was what it was. That's the way it began. And th- that was a very profound way of uh, looking at things at that early age. This was uh, 
Balu at 1982. Is is that yes. when uh, this whole yeah. incident happened? Okay. Yes. A- and that led into something else, which is what your life mission kind of came out to be, which is about the influence of Swami Vivekananda and also the making of uh, SVYM. Again, for the benefit of our listeners, SVYM is uh, Swami Vivekananda Youth Movement, which uh, Dr. Balu is the founding um, member of that. So tell us a bit more about that. You know, when when I got into the engineering program, and those days there was an anti-ragging act as well as there were very strong acts which ensure that students don't go through the experience that I went through. But uh, in a sense, I, although the incident was negative, it had the most positive impact on my life. And several people's lives that I have been able to touch through is revived. Went into college the first day very badly ragged. So badly ragged that I never had the courage to go back to the campus the next day. So coming from a typical middle class family like I did, you need to have enough money to go sit in a movie theater. Those days there was no OTTs or Netflix or Amazons, as you know, there's no internet in some forms. And 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 uh, you you didn't have enough money to do that. At the same time, you didn't have the courage to stay at home because mothers are very intuitive people and they would know that something is wrong. So I would leave home, drive up to cycle up the second day, I cycled up to the college campus. I saw a police constable standing outside. You know, the law says that until the principal calls the constable, he doesn't come to the campus. So it suddenly struck me that acting is going to be, yesterday there was no police constable, today there's a constable, yesterday the acting was intolerable, and so if today this guy is standing out there, it's going to be, it is worse enough for a police constable to be standing out there. So I'm not entering campus at this On the way back uh, in Pasangudi, for those living band who know that there's a Rakhishnashram, then I thought gates are open, green campus, it's going to sit there for some time and Lovely little benches out there under the trees and shade. Nice parking for the cycle. I used to cycle, I was a very avid cyclist. So I just I spent some time there for two, three hours, went home and told my mother class, half day class. All of this they started so half day. Did that for two, three days. And then uh, I think some of the brahmacharis of the Ramakrishna mission noticed me loitering around and they thought this guy must have come to steal some fruits. You know, the mango season had just ended, a lot of them go over and support on campus and so I was walking around and they said maybe these guys come to steal tree, uh, steal some fruits and then with sort of a desperate pretension of looking to be serious I, I went and sat in the library and uh, one day two days you can pretend for two three days and I thought let me take a book and pretend let you know and that is when I got exposed to what Swami Vivekananda wrote those are then in eight volumes called the complete works of Swami Vivekananda the next two months Pretty much read everything that he wrote. Two small books. One was his Call to the Nation, and the other book was called to the Youth of India. I feel every young man of India should be. Every young man of the world should That changed my life. And, and I think uh, I still remember on September 29th or 30th, 29th of that year, in statements that Vivekananda writes about, he says, You know, I call every young man a traitor who, having been people's existence pays not the least heed to them. And statements like, I do not believe in a god or religion which cannot wipe out the widow's tears or bring a piece of bread to the orphan's mouth. Now at 17, I think every one of us is a communist or a socialist. We think we can have a magic band and the world will be equal. I was no different. And when you read statements like this of Swami Vivekananda, you feel inspired. And you know, statements like go from village to village, go to fisherman's hut, the cobbler's crew, stuff like that. I felt that this is the God and this is the religion I want to know and this is how I'm going to know it by going to village to village. And I come home, uh, I had a telegram saying join my humility college in India. So to me, uh, I then believed it and I believe it even now. I thought it was a message from Swami Vivekananda. Because sitting in the ashram, I felt if I get a chance to do something different in my life, I'm going to leave this life. And the same day you come home and you find something like this, I don't even know today's of what a telegram. But those days we actually got telegrams. And so it said, join my medical college. And I thought, this is what my life is destined for. And so I immediately, the second day I went back to the BMS college just to collect my DC and exit the college. Uh, and then went to my straight to get admitted. So, but for that dragging incident, but for Ramakrishna being where it was, but for me getting introduced to Swamiji and his works, I would even feel my life would have been just a mediocre, routine life that everybody leads, maybe even worthless. That made all the difference to me. 
sounds like a very well laid out script for you how your life would shape up right right from the time of you not getting that seat at REC to destiny taking you all the way to Mysore Medical College and that led into the next big thing that you ended up doing the launch of uh, Swami Vivekananda youth movement and your fantastic work with the tribals at HD Kote and uh, Bandipur uh, wildlife sanctuary i don't think so because you know uh, i think i always believe that everybody's life is broken just that we don't surrender ourselves to the higher power and i'm a man who's got deep convictions in the divine and the way our lives are guided if only we can just eat solely we understand it i'm not saying it should be an important helpless uh, giving up cowardly act but a very intelligent uh, very, very i would i wouldn't hesitate to use the word enlightened but very aware sense of self surrender which comes the deep sense of humility and appreciation of the divine principle and you allow that to take control of your life and suddenly you realize so much things can come through you and that is what i believe now looking back i'm not saying i had feeling every time there were many times i felt i am doing stuff and i am the one in control and i am from the organization i have been hospitalized i was pretty strong but i think uh, those are times you wake up the sort of hits you on the head and reminds you that you are nobody so i've had experiences i exposed that too so i always believe what he said you no know, don't stand on a pedestal and say here my poor man take my five cents but consider yourself privileged that you've been having the opportunity to serve the poor man so i think when you surrender and give yourself up to the higher cause you suddenly realize that you become an instrument of change and that's all we are we are just instruments that change is already designed now i remember reading on the swami ji writes the lord who gives birth uh, who created the cow and the cow which uh, the cow which gave gave birth the calf is already pre-programmed to feed milk to it so you don't think that you are coming here to change the world that god created god has already got a path and a clear way and uh, he's just we are just privileged to be used as instruments of change so we are not the doer but things get done to us that's a very interesting way that you put it out we are all instruments of change and probably in your case you had the ability to kind of realize this because you kind of came through the works of uh, vivekananda you understood what it is for everybody else what do you recommend for them to realize that okay they are the instrument of the change these are the things for them to do to realize what they are destined on this planet earth to do i think most of us live our lives very aimlessly we don't really stop to question ourselves we don't stop to spend time on reflection and my feeling is we don't ask questions of ourselves we don't practice self inquiry mainly because not because we don't know that uh, how to do it or we are uh, not wanting to do it it's just that we are afraid of the answers we find i think the more you start stopping and asking questions of yourself a very simple question that amna amna maharshi asked everybody to ask who am i and if you begin there and say even if you don't go deep enough to say you are the atman atman At least, if you say, "Who am I? Why am I born? What am I doing at this point of time? How am I useful to society?" Simply questions like that. I think most of us are afraid to ask those questions because we are afraid of the answers we get. Because deep down, we know the answers that are there, and we just don't want those answers. So I think we go on with life. We just ponder it away. We don't see our life's journey or mission as that that discovery of the inner self. So I I would feel that if there's one message of Swami Vivekananda that really resonates with me. He says we are the makers of our own destiny, and he didn't mean it by saying that you build a great enterprise, a great company, and then say build a great thing. I think what he might deep down, what I think he might have meant is we shape our destiny of that destiny of self-discovery, destiny of discovering that you're one with the other, destiny of discovering that you're one with God itself. And I think uh, once you set out with that conviction, that sense of purpose, I'm not saying that sense of purpose will be permanent, strong enough all the time, the same. We all go through self-doubt. We all go through ups and downs in life, like we do in everything else. But then you hold on to convictions. You begin with faith. I began the faith that Swami Vivekananda's words must be true. Though Vivekananda himself says, "Don't accept me as test it out, try it out. If it works, keep it as throw it out the window." But then he also says, "Start with faith." And I think that's what uh, I have done for myself. And I would say today's young people. uh most importantly like swami ji himself says he says you must have faith in yourselves first 
faith in yourself that you're not throwing up your life, you're not throwing it away, you're not wasting it. You actually are embarking on a journey, a great adventure. And this adventure might really go take you places. And uh, after you do the practice of self-enquiry, you also do a deep sense of reflection. I was privileged and I was truly privileged to have been uh, introduced to Swamiji and his works, but more importantly, two extraordinary things in my life. One was the one who shaped my thinking, trained me, my one who gave me Diksha, my spiritual guru, Swami Atalaranji. Fortunate to have been groomed under him, by him for five years. And my uh, the other guru of the Ramakrishna order, Swami Sureshanand, who helped me understand how to operate in the real world without losing sight of your inner purpose. Uh, I would call Sureshanandji the perfect advising I have known and interacted with who lived in this world like Ramakrishna explained, being the lotus leaf in the water but not getting wet by it. And he showed me how and he taught me that you have to do what you have to do. Well, running an organization is as vyavaharic as it can be. It's possibly more vyavaharic and be more also done. But then, not getting affected by it and still seeing every every step of what you do as yoga, converting action to something higher and with conviction, with, with faith, uh, with the belief that this is also a process purifying yourself and trying to reach closer to God. So I was privileged that I had these two extraordinary gurus in my life and uh, but for whom uh, I wouldn't have been shaped into who I am. That's interesting. For all of us who are not as privileged as you, what are some of the things that we can do, we can consider doing for us to get into this mode of self-inquiry and reflection? And if there's anything else to add on to it, uh, do let us know about it. It's not even something very, very different from what all the all the nyanis of the world have been saying. Practicing simple things like mindfulness, being intensely self-aware, asking very existential questions, practicing self-inquiry, a deep sense of self-inquiry, trying to go deep into the understanding of why you exist, what you exist for, and what is your sense of purpose in life, and also uh, being constantly an observer to yourself. Catching yourself every step of the way and say, am I sleeping? Am I letting the ego take control? Is the eye growing bigger than I? It happens to everybody. That just happened to me, I can say. I have lost my way. And uh, I have uh, altered. I, I still remember in my own personal life. Now, I was appointed the chair of the, I have head of the Vivekananda chair by the Mysore University. And I thought, wow, it's a great opportunity. Just, I thought, oh, I must be knowing Vivekananda really well. Why would this university appoint any man like me to be the chair and the professor of Vivekananda studies? And I still remember the first day I gave a lecture, the hall was filled with 300 400 people and Prabhu Shankara, man I admired, a literary figure, was a great friend and mentor also. He was, all, he was the first chair. Uh, he walked up to me and said, when, when I give speeches, five, six people would be there, but look at the crowd listening to who are the boys of Vivekananda speaks to me. It went up my head. I went to the roof and I was going back to the forest. I thought, I must be really good. And I must have done a lot of stuff in life. And that was a time when uh, the then Chief Minister, Sri Mirapamalji, had written a book called Kota, where he had sort of fashioned the story around my own biography of life. And he had called me Bansurum in the book itself as the, the lead protagonist. So I thought, I must be damn good. The Chief Minister of the State writes my biography and former chair says you are too good. So... And it is in, in that instant of time, I suddenly realized that the work, the process of self-discovery and so on, this message has really fallen by the wayside. I had done exactly what he had warned us about. He, had, he warns about, about, you know, the work being less important, but I doing the work with the memory. And I actually fallen into the exact trap that he warned about. And when that sense hits you, you suddenly realize how silly and stupid and how, how big a failure you are. I felt a tremendous failure. I went through depression. I said, what is this I've done to my life? All my life I thought I'm trying to refine myself and purify myself and all that I had done was being my own ego and think that I'm somebody great and big. I actually walked up to the vice chancellor and said, I want to resign. Yeah, this comes as no surprise for a man who has accomplished so much that, okay, there is that divine uh, role that has played a part in uh, in your whole journey so far. I would, I would simply say it is just it get God just got them through me and that divine is a joy to this living. And talking about it, uh, the journey, I think you had a big, big impact on the tribal community here in Karnataka. I think that 
in many ways became kind of a template for many such organizations across the country. Tell us a bit more about what made you kind of start this movement and what is happening today and what's the future of uh, this tribal movement. You know, uh, I didn't choose to be in a tribal area. That's the, that's the whole. Again, like I said, uh, if I would use the word I, it's, it's wrong. It was, it was just chosen for me. And it all happened so beautifully. The thing is, Swami Achalam is true. Somebody came, somebody heard about me. And I actually, uh, the International Youth Day 1985, I think that announced or something. The first time that we celebrated, the press wrote about me, a small article saying that, there is a young man who started this organization who believes he can work for India in this way. And the then deputy commissioner of Mysore district, Mr. Baligar, B.P. Baligar, he read the article and he actually wrote down to the medical college. So imagine that a deputy commissioner would come down to a medical college to look for a student. He met me over coffee and I was known as a very, even though I was known as a very evolutionary activist in college, so I would fight racking and do all this. So people thought they saw a car coming with a red light on, they thought, so the young man, the deputy commissioner, walked up to me and said, Are you Dr. Balo? I had not graduated yet. And then took me to go coffee in medical college. Canteen sat with me and said, I read this in the paper. I didn't believe it. I want to make sure that it will be true. What do you want to do? I said, I want to just go serve in rural India. Then he said, Why do you want to? What does rural India mean to you? That was the time it hit me. All my life I had grown up in Bangalore, and the only other city I knew was Mysore. So I didn't even know an Indian village. And here I am talking of serving rural India. So it's such an eye me, right? And we have no idea what we're talking. And then he took me to, he said, if you really want to work, this is not the place in the city that you are not close to a city. We had already started working in a place called Chinnadaguri. Uh, he said, that's so close to the city, you don't need you. We don't need you there. So if you really want to do this, if you really have conviction what you believe in, I take it. Those days unified my soul, just like a huge district. And then uh, that's place where you should be working. And he introduced me to another extraordinary gentleman uh, called Nanjun Ram, who had done a survey of tribals and he actually knew all the challenges tribals faced. He sat with me in from Nacharanji's room and explained to me how tribals lived. And so one day, Valiga Nanjun Rao took me along with him. To introduce me to HC Kota into tribals. The last five kilometers, there's no road even. I even joke, and even now I meet Baligar, and he's a great friend, a great supporter, and throughout his career, he's been somebody who stood by our work and us. And uh, I even now tell him that you fooled me. You took me in August, to August 87, you told me down, and so green. Uh, Kote is a dry, deciduous forest. Once the first rains fall, it's lush to me. I said, you brought me in when everything was green and then you just told me, you will land here and just said, yes, I have no idea what is happening. But like I said, these are the things that things get done through. Others, how could you, anybody even believe that somebody at 17 would even have a chance to read Swamiji's this message? Somebody at 19 would set up an organization that would register, go to the income tax office. Every act that has happened in my life from registration of the organization to security department contribution, act clearance to every single thing that has happened, has just happened. And and uh, or going to HD Kote and getting that land and settling down there or working with tribals. I think the more I look back now, I can see the design that took me through every step. And so now I just feel uh, it all happened. Uh, I would simply say that's how I went to the tribal area. And uh, the work I started, obviously, you know, the, the ego doesn't disappear over me. I was, I stood third in my final year in medicine and I thought those is the entrance exams and I thought they just got, only then they'd introduce entrance exam for masters. Uh, I thought I could easily got whatever master post-graduation program I wanted. I just walked away to the forest. Everybody thought I'm a fool. My own batchmates thought this guy screwed up. He just lost his way and he's going to the forest. Tribals thought that um, this guy is not even clear this final year exam. So why would a doctor come and say, you know, in India we always look at it with suspicion. There must be some reason behind it. Uh, maybe he's getting a lot of money from abroad. That's why he's coming here. Maybe he's not even a doctor. So he's just pretending to be one. All kinds of reasons. But when I went there, uh, one incident uh, shaped a lot of my life. I was desperate, wanting to be accepted. I was, in fact, I write this incident in my book, Voices from the Grassroots. I say the voice that keeps me going. And it keeps me going even today. It keeps me sleepless even today. Um, the end lady, uh, she was the daughter of the chieftain. You know, in those days, even now, the tribal colonies are named after the chieftain. 
the group of people who are his clan within the colony. Tani Madaya was the name of the chieftain, and Tani Madana Hadi, Hadi is the hamlet. His daughter was pregnant. So I was thrilled. I thought, okay, I can deliver this lady and I'll be accepted as a There was not a, uh, my affirmation would come only if people accepted me as a daughter. So I went to Sanya Madhana Adya, I still remember that day, evening around 5.36, and I shocked that this was a 14-year-old child uh, who was pregnant. And uh, the one side of me was unhappy about it, but the other side of me was like, that's a great adventure. If I can deliver this high-risk pregnancy, this 14-year-old teenager, tribals would fall in love with me and say, this is God who's come to save us. And so that, that ego kept pushing me, and I thought, okay, and... I had learned my obstetrics from one of the greatest professors I would call of my time, Professor Kaulgood, who was an extraordinary human being, was the most compassionate humanist I have seen in medicine. And he had told me, kindly drive it as the first pregnancy, takes around 24 hours to a woman to deliver, and he said, all you've got to do is practice watchful experiment. So evening, 6 o'clock, it's a project tiger area, Asia's largest elephant corridor. I thought I want to trample or eaten up by a tiger to come back tomorrow morning. I walked back that night. The next early morning, six o'clock, I went. I still remember I was walking by this uh, elderly, not elderly, now she's elderly, that time the king, Betakurba, woman, Putama stopped me and said, Where are you going so early, early in the morning? Because the elephants come to the river to drink water and go back. And she said, What are you off to swirl? And she said, I'm going to go deliver Madhi. And she laughed and said, Madhi was her niece. She said, Oh, you don't have to go. The child was born last night. I was oh. disappointed. This child, this, this 14 year old, uh, the baby couldn't follow the textbook and come up for 24 hours. Now, the only opportunity to prove myself is gone. But I had to show something to show that I'm a doctor. So I thought I should go there and put some tension violet onto the umbilical stump and some uh, antibiotic drops to the eye of the baby and come back. So I went to the heart of Tani Madai. Tani Madai had gone to the forest to fetch firewood to, uh, to come back, heat water for the and mother to have a bath and to wash the baby. I, I was standing at the hut of the Tani Madhya's daughter or his house and I could hear her inside. I knew that she's inside and I kept asking her to come out and show me the baby because obviously don't enter the house without the mother's permission, the lady's permission, the lady was not responding. Try talking to somebody who doesn't even answer. It's like talking to a one. Three, four minutes, five minutes, ten minutes and then you know, human ego took over what the hell, I'm a university ranker, I come all the way to serve you and you can't come out and show me your baby. So in anger, I shouted in Canada, saying that if you don't come out and show me your baby, I'm going to come into the house and see it. And her scream, that's the voice that she resonates in me and I can't, even now it's a very painful story for me. She said, please don't come inside, I have nothing to wear. And this was 1987, 40 years after so-called political freedom. We still hadn't got socio-economic freedom. 80 kilometers from the city of Minnesota. A young Indian woman who shouldn't even have got pregnant at 14, can't even call her woman a child, gets pregnant and delivers her own baby uh, in the middle of the night. And by delivering the placenta, she soils the only sari, washes her sari in the middle of the night, puts it on the hut for it to dry, and is waiting for the sun to come out to wear it back again. So that hit me so hard, I felt like giving up and running. I said, This is not the life I choose. I can't take this. But then Vivekananda is Vivekananda. He said that I enter through four of your bodies, I'll never exit. That's energy I believe. And uh, this is your shape, your own destiny. So I felt that as long as there are Madhus like this in this country, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, today, to cut a long story short, Madhi grew up that she had a baby. That baby grew up, studied in my school. She became a mother and she had a child and was delivered by my wife and obstetrician in our hospital. The child had imperforate anus, a close friend, pediatric surgeon in Bangalore, immediately operated on the child, saved it, and they're all now joyful in gardens. So when I look back, uh, you know, uh, I felt that we can't allow this to happen in India. And so that's what led me to build hospital schools, uh, be part of all this entire project of education, health. And one thing led to the other. And I interpreted development as providing access to all that. So that is the mainstream narrative of development itself. Doing that for 20 years, make the mobile units, science programs, that this, all that you do, building toilets, homes, finding roads, fighting with the government. And still I find I haven't solved it. Something was missing and I was feeling restless. I thought maybe public health, and I'm not understanding public health, maybe I should get more knowledge of public health, get a certificate program in public health. Somehow I felt that's also not enough. Then I thought maybe I don't understand management. 
maybe the problem in india is that we don't know how to manage them so i got an mp in uh, health systems management but it took me some for some time ego satisfaction some time but i still found that this has come back i thought everything that could be done has been done schools have been built colleges have been built why am i not solving the problem of human development why are tribes the way they are why did the state bring in laws which call them poor and then say i do anti poverty So this anger, this confusion, led me to try to do different things, and I thought maybe I haven't discovered the answers yet. So let me go to the mecca of development learning. Let me go to Harvard. I went to Harvard with my program. I did a fellowship there, and then I realized even Harvard didn't have answers. But what I, I still credit Harvard for something extraordinary. While by not answering the questions, I was burning it. it. It gave me more ways of asking. It reframed the way I could ask questions of myself, and then I suddenly discovered the answers were all embedded within me, my experiences, and the knowledge I had gained from community stuff. That is when I started writing the books, either Citizen or Voices from the Grass, or even Relation Lessons, or all reflection is extraordinary community wisdom embedded in that. And that is when I figured out development is not the roads, homes, cars. Development is all about people, and that will wake up the set. Suddenly, I discovered all answers are in Swamiji's message. He said, "You know, building people—that's what Swamiji said." He said, "What we need is build, make lions out of them, build people, invest on people." And I realized India has been doing that for generations. Till we got colonized and shifted the narrative and started the economic pathway, what India had done was invest heavily on building human and social capital, and there were powerful economic consequences. And that is what civilization in this country was famous for. We were we were the greatest country in the world, largest GDP, nearly sixteen hundred continuous years. Not because we want to grow the GDP, but we built the people who could build the GDP. So for me, development became a constant expansion of human capabilities. For me, development is a constant expansion of human and social capital. And human capital, for me, I define it from my standpoint. And from this message. Very simplistically, I said that the constant expansion of the physical, which is all taken of this body. So I mean, this is the body and serving the body is important. The physical, the intellectual, the emotional, and spiritual capabilities of a person, which will give a person the agency to lead and sustain life, and that is essentially what Swami's message is also. What Upanishad's message is, and then that's what we all do. Finally, I expect. But to me, tribal development became a today the Vivekananda movement. Designs and delivers on projects across Karnataka, touching the lives of close to three million people. More than eight hundred people full time working on this. Average age of between twenty eight and nine years of people working here. And I think that is the message we live. We really believe that if we invest on building human and social capital, it will have powerful economic consequences and a resurgence in development. And it's not just tribal development for us. It's about human development itself. And uh, Conviction in the power of community wisdom. I think will be the game changer. We have to start trusting our people. We got to trust our poor. We cannot believe that the poor don't know what they want. We cannot say that I know what the poor want. Neither the state has that the uh, power and authority to save or any NGO or anybody else. We'll have to say we will co-discover the problem with our people and we'll co-solve it. We'll co-create a solution. And that sense of working with people emerged for me at that point. Till then, I was believing I was working for tribes, and it is that's when when I realized that they know much more than what I did. I realized that I'm working with them. I bring some resources to the table to the organization I represent. The state brings its own resources, but people bring their resources, and once we combine and synergize together, then real problems get solved. And looking back today. The capacity building commissions the prime minister conceded of, and he keeps talking about this, and that's why it gives me hope. He keeps talking of Jan Bagidari, and everything he does is citizen centricity, citizens matter, every single region matter. He talks about the state not being a provider, but state actually being a partner with the citizen to co-create India. He said all of us are part of Team India to build a new India, and the new India calls its own. So we wake up that he was exactly that. So I believe. That you know that spirit of the partnership uh, comes from, uh, and I can be useful because those convictions of experience that I gained learning from communities and their wisdom sort of prepared the ground in me intellectually and emotionally also to do what to be done today. That is so so beautifully stated. There, I have goosebumps literally when I heard the Mada's uh, story. I, I think in lot many ways a reflection of. 
what has been done and what more needs to be done for the country to move forward and couldn't have been a better segue than this uh, dr balu is the next topic around leadership development i know you have kind of been very passionate about uh, developing leaders makes whole lot of sense after hearing you all saying that nation building capacity building is at the heart of building the people growing the people so from that standpoint if i were to ask your own journey in terms of leadership development what are the key leadership lessons that the listeners can take away from your own journey and start implementing it second piece uh, what i'm very very interested to hear from you uh, i have uh, heard and seen uh, you articulating the 3h philosophy would love to hear the 3h philosophy from you you see the most of us the moment we talk of leadership what really uh, we, we most of us uh, intuitively or conventionally understand is about being a leader and vivekananda says so beautifully he says it's about being and becoming so the becoming is different from being and so it's not i so therefore i also believe that i don't believe in the noun form of the word leader i don't think anybody can become a leader i think all that we can do is begin to exercise leadership so it's an activity for me it's an activity of mobilizing oneself because most of the time we can't even control ourselves it's an expression of enormous control of inner nature that we can the call you know the internal nature and expressing control of external nature that internal nature and the power of internal nature manifesting itself with the power of the good of the outside world so to me leadership is about understanding the self understanding others around us and the actions that binds the self to the other and embedded in this understanding is selflessness it's it's a selfless action for the benefit of societal positive constructive action that we need to all engage in and the bhagavad gita says about acting without looking at consequences to me leadership is exactly that it's mobilizing oneself mobilizing all the resources around us all the others that you can call or use the word others all for doing something societally constructive but doing it despite knowing that there is an enormous uncertainty you will have, you may never succeed doesn't matter so you are set up pregnant you are planning as about both success or failure and it's very difficult to really inspire yourself to do that so to me leadership is that journey and therefore embedded in the understanding of leadership i call it as a being leadership itself being a spiritual journey. so in this entire spiritual journey you live to you exist to always think of the other and constantly explore how can you be more useful and like gandhi said can we lose ourselves in the service of the others and if you can do that i think that is that is a journey of leadership and i would i would see it as not something intensely personal but being impersonal enough to constantly think of the other like and vivekananda says so beautifully in a letter to the master bhagavad he says the vanities of life are transient but he alone lives in us for others the rest are more dead than alive but if you reconstruct the statement there's so much of meaning in it one it's just awareness of the vanities of life but user in nature of life the maya of life not claiming that you are the doer embedded in it is the understanding of the awareness of mindfulness but more importantly is a sense of celebrating life the vibrancy of life and the manifestation of life in the service of the other and then somebody also says it's so nice and to me it aligns with the leadership literature today now leadership literature talks of three very critical things in leadership first is having motivation you know you got to be inspired it's a it's emotion second it's about strategy thinking of what to do and third is about action so leadership with all three motivation strategy and action that's what modern business schools teach but look at what swami vivekananda said under the years ago in fact he used the word servant leadership even before it was part of the leadership literature Greenleaf in the 1930s used it first, and then 60s Harvard used it. But Harvard gets the credit. But Swami Vivekananda used it in 1890s, and and he said it should lead like a servant. It should be it should do servant leadership. Use the exact word. And in that he says, have the heart to feed. He said, feed my children, feed feed for the poor, the marginalized, the downtrodden. That is motivation. That's emotion. That's the heart. And the next head he said is the head to think. That strategy. just simply don't get inspired to do something and jump into it you may want to save some person who's drowning and you may forget that you don't know swimming yourself and if you jump in to save that person you are also going to drown with it so he says the head to think and third you must be out there to save 
use the head to take and put a stick, uh, bring a stick to reach out to him and pull him ashore. So that is action. You got to act also. The head to, uh, the heart to feel, the head to think, and the hands to work. This is exactly what leadership is all about. Motivation, strategy, and action. Let's top it up with one other statement that I read about Swamiji. His leadership is also about being present by being absent. Yeah, I write that in my leadership book and I said that that is when you discover that we always start looking at ourselves as somebody who becomes invisible. We start thinking that, you know what, we thought this world will not run because we confuse leadership for positions of authority. And then in the exercise of authority, we start believing I am really important. I have to be part of this. But real leadership is actually being present by being absent. And you can make that state, that, that high level of awareness. I think that is a spiritual and spiritual evolution that I speak about. Leadership being the spiritual journey. Super. So we have been with Dr. Balu talking a lot about self-inquiry, reflection, his work in the capacity building uh, stuff, leadership, so on and so forth. We are not done yet. We are slipping into a segment in Inspire Someone today, which is called as the power of three round. There's a set of questions for everything. There is three quick or sharp answers around that. So with Dr. Balu, we have an exception that there's no quick answers. We would love to hear his anecdotes. We would love to hear his deep meaning around some of this stuff. The first of the power of three round is Three stories of winning against odds through your life journey. When you're 19 and you start, you, you, are, you are sort of founding an organization. People don't agree. I've had people saying that this fellow hasn't even got a mustache. Uh, what can you do? And then you start, all that you have is power of faith and uh, renegotiating people's appreciation of your life. And then, uh, and the reinforcement I got that there's a higher power with you and you don't have to worry. Was we were building this hospital at Kingsnerly, and I was those days I used to wear the dhoti and sometimes be in a bunny. And, and uh, I would, if you look at me, and today's world generally thinks that doctor must that go to be quick and go to doctor. You don't speak English and you're not well dressed, you think you're not a good doctor. So I was uh, standing when construction was happening with dirty dhoti and the bunny and quiet all over. And the car, those is a Marathi 800 car, even a Marathi 800 car, those is, oh my god, so much man's car. So a young man with his wife came rushing in and said in uh, English, uh, broken Canada, I was trying to articulate it. Then I heard there's a doctor here, there's a real doctor. Then he looked at me and asked me, where's the doctor? And then I also answered him, Karna, I am the doctor. And that he was really taken aback and didn't accept it. I said, no, 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 I want the doctor. Then I thought, okay, now I have to talk in English. Then in crisp English, I told him, well, I am the doctor. And you can be rest assured I can take the doctor. He had actually lost his uh, come to Kenshali is little, uh, you know, there's a road which folks have to issue called the one road road, you should car up to Jungle Lodge, and the road comes to Kavini, and that's the road, you take the wrong road, the folk. And this child had well, wanted to pee or something, and while doing it, some insect must have bitten him in the bushes, and he had allergies developed. So the three, four year old child, he came running to me and said, My son is full of rashes and he's itching, and something's wrong, can you tell? So I looked at him with a simple allergy, some insect bite, so I just gave him an antihistamine and then the child was fine in three, four minutes. This guy was very impressed, then he started talking to me and said, what are you doing here? And then he finally comes, I must be a doctor because the style teaching had come down and I'm speaking English now. So I said, we are building this hospital. So he, my story started and then he uh, he came from Chennai and uh, he had a showroom of Bajaj, it was called Hex Automobiles inside that in Mount Road. He introduced himself, then he said, I just came with my wife and child for, uh, to the jungle lodges. We lost her, we came here, and that's what I'm doing. And I said, and coincidentally, that was a Friday evening, and I was actually, I just wanted this guy to go away. I said, I have a lot of thinking to do because next day I had to pay around 2,700 We started building the hospital with money, and every Saturday would be labor payment, and I was wondering how will I make this payment? And I was saying, this guy is a nuisance. I've taken care of his son, why don't you go? But then he was asking me everything and then he said, well, I came for this holiday, but uh, I don't have a checkbook. I lose his credit cards or not. I have some money. And he just, I said, whatever I can give you without, you know, that extra I have brought. And he gave me 2,800 rupees. Now, I only needed 2,765 or something. So all, all our existence is 38 years now. We never got more than what we deserve. But we never got less than what we need also. 
So that shows that there's that higher power which knows what is necessary for the next step. So this is something which has been so powerful for me. And Swamiji says it so beautifully. He says, and it's a lived experience for me. He says, you never get what you don't deserve. You can never be given what you don't deserve. And nobody can take away from you what you rightfully deserve. And that's true of the organization too. And, uh, you know, looking back, I think, uh, great lesson that the challenge of finances is addressed by its own mechanism. Though we always feel we don't have a lot of money and how we get it and all this, we go through all those pressures. But deep down, I know money will find us when we need it. And that's the reality of 38 years of existence. What more proof of the pudding? And very satisfying moment for me has been challenging the state, the power and might of the state, getting written and arrested, all that I've gone through. But finally succeeding in convincing the state that rehabilitation should be on the terms of the people. Fighting for the rights, getting the rights restored by the National Human Rights Commission, getting India's constitutional mechanisms to actually work and succeed, and getting the entire cabinet to be fair to the then Chief Minister Esam Krishna, who I challenged him and said, I'm not going to get tribalism in them to Vidhan Saudar to discuss settlement. If you're really serious about settling tribal problems, you come with the cabinet to our forest. And we must appreciate the greatness of that person and his entire team at that time, bureaucracy, then Chief Minister, Secretary Mr. S. Ramnath and others, who actually had a cabinet meeting, historically the first time in the country where it was outside the state capital, in the forest with the tribal chieftains, discussing tribal development and how to resolve the issue of rehabilitation and to implement the Human Rights Commission's orders. So that was, that was something which is extraordinary for me. And there have been painful moments. Like I used to, they had started the school, 28 children in the school, no food. I would come to Mysore, I would have a bag. I would walk up the talking street in Mysore called Devrajas Road, go shop to shop, ask for some water, the people would keep putting it into the bag and go back in the evening. And one shop, I don't want to name the shop for protecting this identity, would regularly give something. And one day I think he was frustrated or angry or whatever happened to him. He said, you're a doctor, aren't you ashamed to beg? I have a small, he had a cellar. He said, I can give you the cellar. I'll you get up a clinic here, earn your money, and buy the rations and give it to the tribal children. Why are you begging me? It's a nuisance to me. I was hurt. I felt that what the hell. I felt like giving up. I said, this is not the life I chose. So I think it's something like, I was not mature enough to even understand what Buddha said. You don't accept what people throw at you as criticism, then it doesn't belong to you. But it's nice to hear it as a story, but when you have a lived experience where you humiliate your family, you have 24, 25, you feel that what the hell, I could go abroad and earn money and they check to some organization. But then subsequently, uh, my guru Achala, the story I don't want to relate on a lack of time, but restored in me the conviction to see everything as an opportunity to grow and evolve, use it as a spiritual seg- segue for growth. And that is when I realized that these are challenges are going to be. But when you convert it and not see it as a problem, but an extraordinary opportunity which nobody else is privileged to have to rediscover yourself, rediscover your convictions and still go ahead in life. And I learned what Vekanda says. He says for that this kind of work is in the English uh, uh, what do you call uh, the way he used English and was proficient in that. It's a unique three piece for this kind of work. First he said is purity. You're absolutely pure in thought, word, and deed. Secondly, he said, you need enormous patience. And the third, he said, you must persevere. We have purity, patience, and perseverance will succeed. So I think these experiences reminded me those words are actually a mantra for social work. Cool. Three practices that are unique to Dr. Balu. I possibly am my own watchman, my self-reflection, and being my strong critique, and constantly trying to say, when did I stay? Every day I stay. So uh, that's exactly why I need to be a watchman all the time. I slip. I remind myself before going to bed. I sit back and say, "How many times did I sleep today?" And I measure my life as every time I sleep less and less, I must be then realize more. The second practice is just love everyone. Vishwa Prema is only near forward. And when you love everybody, that's the beginning of seva. Without prema, you can't have seva. And uh, whether it's people working with me, it's whether my colleagues in the Vivekananda Youth Movement, all the capacity building commission, or anywhere, or the tribals, you know, I love very 
or called, uh, I cannot even describe the kind of affection and love I have for people. And be a lifelong learner. The day you stop learning, like, so deep meaning in it. He said, as long as I live, so long do I learn. And Brahma Jnani, like Ramakrishna Paramahansa says that, what about mere mortals like us? So I think being a lifelong learner means a lot. Every opportunity you can get to learn, every conversation, every question you ask is opportunity to learn and figure it out. So wonderful. I, I think for somebody who has accomplished so much that humility and that eagerness to learn, stay curious is something each one of us can definitely imbibe. Three things the youth of this world should focus to make the world a better place. I think then people have to realize that they can't keep waiting for a desire to come and have a magic or a change. They got to believe in themselves. They got to be the change they want to see. Today's world is a world of powerful opportunities as much as a world of complex problems. So we want solution providers. We don't want people who can complain and sit back. Believe in themselves is the first message I would give. Believe that they have the future. Believe that they have the solution providers. Well, many of us might be, our generation might have been the problem creators for them, but they have to be the solution providers. Today's society is saddled with three major crises. They are inherited. We are given them an ecological crisis of unimaginable proportions. We are leaving them behind with the socio-economic crisis, enormous inequities in life. And more importantly, the youth of today are going through enormous self-crisis. They have lost their identity. They can't figure out who they are. Highest number of suicides are the youth of today. And believing in themselves is the way to the first message I would give. The second message is don't imitate, but reflect. You don't need role models. You've got to be your own role model. Hey, Krishnamurti says, be your own guru. Hold on to the messages of great people, great mentors. Be guided by it, but not blinded by it. That's the power of the Bhagavad Gita. That's the power of messages of Vivekananda. Take their message, live by it, but don't be blinded by it, but be guided by it. Third is, faith in God is never misplaced. God has become a commodity which is more political than religious. So I think, just have faith in yourself and faith in God. And never so very true. And uh, this would be amiss if I don't ask you. I'm sure you would have tons and tons of insights coming from your coaches and mentors all through your life. If you were to pick three of those insights that has made a difference to you, what would those three insights be? I know I would say a combination of uh, some and inspiration. You already mentioned uh, always think of the other. Whenever I would have a problem, I said, okay, this is your problem. What about the other? How does he see? That's what Suresh you would ask me. And so, constantly think of the other was something I learned. Second message I again said this you know, just live your purpose. Trust in God and live your purpose is what Swami Achalam would tell me. And third, he would say, never stop to reflect. It's reflection which actually unleashes the hidden inner power with the inside. Deep contemplation, meditation, and reflection. And uh, so these are the three powerful messages I learned from my mentors. And uh, and if I can call, these are the two great people. And I had several mentors in their own ways, but somebody whom I can call that guy, somebody whom I can call to shape my life, the most important mentors and coaches in my life have been my students. The last of the part of three round question here, Dr. Balu, which is, you are a prolific writer, you have authored quite a few books. If I were to pick one, because a lot of the listeners out here are also citizens of this country. We are celebrating the 75th year of independence. Hence, I want to call out something from your book, which is I, the citizen. If there are three insights for the listeners to pick from I, the citizen, what would that be? The first message I would say is democratizing development is critical. Democracy is not just about elections and voting and participation and engagement. Democratizing development and I write about it, so I believe it as that. Just this message of democratizing development. Second, I think investing on human and social capital has powerful economic And we need to do that on our own self. All of us have to keep investing. The third message from that book is the poor know poverty the best. So let us not pretend to tell them what poverty is and how to alleviate it. So they know the problem, they have the solutions. Trust in them, have faith in them, work with them, never fall. And I think that is what is dignity of development. That is what is seeing people as more equal. That is what is partnership all about. 
And so partnering for progress is far more necessary than working for somebody and telling I'm I'm helping them. I think that's the last point we can do like this. So I think the three, if I can just pick three messages from either citizen, I would use this. Wonderful. Co-creation at the heart of everything. Moving on, currently, Dr. Balu is associated or is working with the Prime Minister office as part of the Capacity Building Commission. So my question to you, Dr. Balu, is what is it and what does this mean for the future of the nation? I think uh, this was this emerged from an, uh, I think a deep sense of uh, conviction as well as a strategic vision of the Honorable Prime Minister. Uh, a couple of years ago, he felt that we need we need a really future-looking team India to build the India, new India that he was visioning for the country. Whether it is a five trillion dollar inclusive economy, whether it is Atmanirbhar Day, or whether it is inclusive of emerging technologies, or making everything for the citizens' ease of living. So he felt that existing models of public administration may not really satisfy the needs that he was demanding of people and wanting people to deliver. And he also felt that public administration is not about being a public servant. Attitude should be of a public servant, but you got to go beyond that. So in his language, he said, uh, how do you get people to stop thinking they're just mere? I think the whole concept of the Capacity Building Commission came from the Prime Minister's vision, vision of how to build a new India, where he genuinely believed that this country needs every Indian to participate. And that's what he calls Team India. So he says the one point... Uh, people have to be part of the system which actually works for this country. And uh, calling himself the Pradhan Seva, he said that Seva power. And Swami Vivekananda talks about it so beautifully. He says the two national ideals for India should be Seva and Jati. And drawing inspiration from our civilization ethos and from the Karma Yoga, the Prime Minister felt that we need to create a bureaucracy which can which can actually be future ready and be built to deliver on the vision that he's contemplating, a $5 trillion inclusive economy that every Indian is taking in touch with. The Antioch concept, Atmanir Bharata is a lived experience under the Justice Token, where he believes citizens' ease of living matters, where that's what, that's what governance is all about, reduce government, but increase governance and make sure every, the citizen's life is better, whether it's ease of living or ease of doing business. And how do you deploy emerging technologies? And you're seeing all that now in GBT and but the bureaucracy has to luxury. Here it's a lot to do this. And you know, you got to see it in context. When we got a freedom, uh, India was a country which was steeped in poverty and we had actually lost out the battle in the GDP and we just 2% of the global GDP. And so we were a poor nation. Let's accept 50 million people, most of it living in poverty. So India had to necessarily prepare itself and its bureaucracy to be a provider. We had to take care of our citizens. We had to be a very welfare driven and provide. The skill sets of our civil servants have to provide. But 90s, when we privatize or we globalize, etc., suddenly we said no longer it's about just providing. Not that we gave up providing, but it is also about provisioning, creating marketplaces where people are participating and start provisioning for themselves. So we moved from providing to provisioning. And it's not just a paradigmatic shift, it also has to mean a shift in skill sets and mindset of the bureaucrats. It took a decade for them to learn that. Today, the Prime Minister has been talking about partnership, Jalbagigari. Which is again a completely new paradigm where we say that we are all together responsible to build a great country. Which means the civil services have to be empowered and built and built to trust citizens and not see them as just mere recipients of welfare, but co-creators of progress, which is a big ask. The mindset of the shift. So the behavioral competencies have to be grown. So he sees them not as karmacharis. So he says people should not see themselves as salaried employees or as karmacharis, but operate the seva bhav and say, I have to become from a karmachari to a karma yogi. Now, you as an ordinary citizen walking into a government office, more often than not, they all experience people telling us, we can't do this, this world doesn't permit it, as per the rules, only this can be done. So he says, that is disturbing the ease of living. People, citizens don't feel that the state exists for them. It's always looked like that we create barriers for them. So he says, our mindset should move from being a rule-based, of, not that rules are not important, you need rules for governing. But he said the attitude should not be about, or the approach cannot be rule-based. It has to be role-based. We must see that I exist for the citizens. I exist to make ease of living for the citizens. I exist to build this country and its progress. And shifting yourself from a rule-based to a role-based. So building capacities in India's civil service ecosystem, in individuals, in the institutions, ministries and departments and organizations, and the whole of government itself. 
So this approach of whole of government, how do you de-siloize, how do you build this, how do you build policy change for all doing all that? And how do you look at the supply side of capacity building? How do you look at making capacity building it is demand-driven, keeping the future in mind, understanding work, the future of work for the nation and public administration, redefining the workplace, that is reducing government but increasing governance, and investing on the worker and building his capacities, his behavioral competencies, his functional competencies, and his domain competence to deliver to new India. I think this vision of the Prime Minister is what created the mission Karmayoti. The Capacity Building Commission, uh, which I'm privileged to be a part of, is as a member of the Human Resources to look at all this, is to deliver on mission Karmayoti, we consider the heart and soul of it, and to deliver on looking at how do you enable the 40 million civil servants across India both in the, uh, in the government of India and in all the state governments. And just the immediate phase one of the government of India itself that you're working right away is now 3.5. And then the next level and the next level. So eventually, the commission would work with every single public servant of the country and make them to deliver on these national aspirations set by the province. I personally believe that this will be the legacy of the prime minister and be a game changer for this country. And will redefine our public administration. And we must all be proud that no country has tried out an institutional framework of this magnitude, taking such an approach ever. Now, this is the first country in the world which is doing it. And at some day, we'll possibly have a Davos kind of an event, a global HR summit, where these things will be shared with the rest of the world. And truly, we'll also be part of the Vishwa Guru that Vikanda spoke about, the Prime Minister speaks about. And taking these messages to the rest of the world to Give them ideas how they can all make the world a better place by the models that India creates for This is truly exciting and exhilarating to see what the future for the country uh, holds. And in lot of since this is also the theory of change at work at a pretty massive broad country level. Right? So, so something like this to succeed, to accelerate. And you are also the forefront of public uh, policy framework as well. So what do you attribute for something like this to kind of succeed, to kind of deliver on uh, its mission? I think the first is the enormous uh, strategic and visionary leadership the Prime Minister himself provides for the reporting to the Prime Minister and to the Human Resource Council and the political will and the conviction that he believes in building capacity. So for him, it's a lived conviction that people and their capacities constantly should be, you know, he's the kind of person who says, I, as Prime Minister, need my capacities to be built on the day. Now, you cannot get a more humble and uh, open person who believes so much in lifelong learning because Vishen Karmiyogi's mandate is lifelong learning. And it draws his energy from the way the person lives as a Prime Minister. And I think that matters for success because finally it's not just a program. It is a passionate conviction that, uh, that his personality gives us the inspiration or charisma. Second is, uh, we as a system, I have been recognizing this now the years since I joined the commission and it's been operating. I think there's inherently every single public servant I have met, despite the stereotype that this is the outside world, actually want to be different and do more. I have met such extraordinary people. Obviously, they're mediocre people, like in every segment of society, the corporate sector, civil society, every sector has mediocrity. But the joy is, the, the, there are such extremely well-qualified, well-meaning, seriously intending people in the public administration system of this country. And that's what gives hope. And uh, highly qualified people, the IITs and IIMs, and who really believe that they can change India. And, and we're open to this kind of inputs. So I think that is, that is something which is going to make it succeed. And the third and most important is People are willing to now explore how they can they look at citizens not as subjects and being more open-minded towards that my bop attitude which governments initially had is now moving to because there's no choice. Everybody understands that you can't be doing this all the time. You've got to get it done through people. And I think that is something which is growing stronger. But to me, it is this this newfound energy, not just in people. And last and the most important to me is I think the youth of this country who are not going to be satisfied with status quo. The restless generation are going to demand that we go transcend mediocrity and take this nation towards. And that pressure on the both on the political executive and the bureaucratic executive itself will make people change and accept it. 
So I think a combination of all the good things falling in place today. So we are at the right time in history. We are at the right point of time. And so to me, it's exciting because I believe I'm privileged and to be positioned in this place, uh, like I said, it's always uh, destiny, uh, to contribute to what I believe I've been prepared for the last four uh, And oh, How and wonderful that is. Yeah, and so this, this is something which uh, will be something which will become a game changer for India's future. So in lot many ways, in close quarters, you're seeing the unwilling of being a leader to becoming a leader. What does it look like to see the Karma Yogi at work? And is it true? Uh, what we hear from the press that the Prime Minister doesn't sleep or he kind of works non-stop for 18-19 hours a day. He sets the tone for the rest of the team. So you're witnessing all of this in close quarters. I would simply say uh, I would consider it an extraordinary privilege to working with somebody and for somebody who is passionately devoted to the cause of building great So somebody who lives, breathes and sleeps building a nation which we can all be proud of. Building a nation where every Indian is included. Building a nation where the poverty is something to speak in our history books. Building a nation where uh, the Vivekananda dreamt about the mother India on a resplendent throne being the Jagat Guru, the Jagat Mata for the rest of the world. So when you see somebody who passionately believes in it and actually acts on it, I think it's an inspiration for all. And uh, it, it sort of keeps you going. I think. And what more can you ask? I think we are all living in exciting times, looking forward to that. So like I said, couldn't have been a better time to have this conversation with you uh, celebrating India's 75th year of independence. Dr. Balu, this has been a masterclass of sorts uh, to kind of Quote back uh, Swamiji's words, man making character building towards resurgent India. And that is what you kind of walked us through this entire length of the conversation. Before we wrap up, like I said, this podcast is all about creating ripples of inspiration. What is your Inspire Someone Today message for all of our listeners? I, I, it's so difficult now that you, you are asking this question. I would just say, what do I understand? Faith, faith, faith in oneself and faith in the fact that India will be that general guru that the world is waiting for. And we all have a role to play to take India to be that Jagat Guru, the world leader, world uh, teacher, so to say. It has been an absolute privilege to have a conversation with you, Dr. Balu. Thank you so much for taking time and sharing your words of wisdom with me and all my listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at inspiresomeonetodaypodcast at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what you listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate Inspire Someone Today podcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off. And until next time, keep inspiring.